0: You don't realize how much you miss the piano till you don't have it. And there's certain things that we do in, in uh, the service that kind of fill in the gaps, you know, like preludes and uh, offertory hymns or, or offertory uh, songs. And so we uh, we do miss Mary, miss Marianne, but uh, I understand she's having painters at the house, and that's been kind of difficult. So uh, we're, we'll uh, be glad to have her back when she's able to be back with us. We're picking back up in our study of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. And, um, you know, as I've studied for this, or for all of the sermons thus far, other than the sermon on, uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, this has just kind of been uh, a, a very heavy uh, few weeks as we've gone through chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and now 6. And we've talked about sin and judgment and death and all of that every time we... We come back to be together and it just is can be a very heavy thing to uh, to hear that each time. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me <laughs> because really for all the way through chapter 11 of Genesis, it that's pretty much the theme that we deal with every every time. But I want to bring out a few things each time. Each week, that I believe that we can see from each of these passages as we go through the book, march through the book of Genesis, that I hope at the end of the day, or at the end of the sermon at least, give you hope and assurance and a reason to live for Christ as you go out into the world. And today is no exception to that. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6 as we look at kind of this... This uh, prelude to the flood story. This is kind of a... uh, If you you read books, this is kind of like a preface that gets you ready for the next three chapters of Genesis and what's going to happen in this great judgment of God that comes on all the world as a result of man's sin. And so this is telling us, as a preface to the book, why... God decides to judge the world, and the reasons for that are are, are numerous, but I want us to notice two particular reasons as we go through the text today, and uh, so let's read together Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll pray together, and then I'll get into the sermon. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1, God's Word says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They, these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and acknowledge, Lord, this is a heavy story. Lord, this story has a weight to it that bears down on us. To recognize that the world would be so corrupt, so defiled by the things that we as humans have done, that you would choose to judge all of humanity for our sins. But Lord, we know it to be true. We know that life cannot go on forever like it does in this sinful and fallen world. We know that there is a weight being stored up, a treasure of sin being stored up for us that only can be answered in judgment. And Lord, we know that this judgment would be right, that you would be right to judge our sins and to condemn us. To an eternity of judgment in hell. But yet, Lord, we know the rest of the story. We know that you are a good God. And Lord, we know that you find favor. You find favor. You show grace to those who trust in you. Father, even though this story is heavy with judgment, even though this story is heavy with corruption and with wickedness and with defilement. Lord, give us hope, even in a little inkling of hope in the in the story of Noah. And may we trust that this is a foreshadowing of something greater that was to come. Lord, use me in this next little bit of time that we have together. Use me as your messenger to strengthen those who hear. Lord, to give encouragement, to give assurance of salvation. To call those who do not believe to believe and to call those who do believe to persevere. Father, bless us now as we study from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In the March 28th issue of the Wall Street Journal, one of my favorite columnists, uh, Peggy Noonan, wrote an opinion piece regarding her predictions of how Americans would respond to the Mueller report. This is back before the Mueller report came out. It was when it was going to come out that that uh, weekend in the article. She pointed out how little truth really matters anymore. What really matters is not the truth itself but how our side interprets the truth, how we quote spin it. And she says at the beginning of the article on on this issue, she says, people are proud of their bitterness now. Old America used to accept our splits as part of the price of being us, numerous, varied, honorary. Current America with its moderating institutions like the church going down and its dividing institutions like the internet rising, sees our polarization not as something to be healed, but a reason for being, something to get up for. There's a finality to it, a war-to-the-death quality. You know, Ms. Noonan is driving at something that I think everyone knows is there. It seems that increasingly our society feeds on disorder, on chaos, and on bitterness. You can clearly see it on the national level, in the way that we have completely lost our civility and our decency. When you go home today, this afternoon, and you turn on the 24-hour news service that you might watch Pay attention to the number of, quote, news reports that actually have nothing to do with meaningful news. Most of the news today, if you took a tally, has nothing to do with really anything that has any real value to know about. But rather, most of the news today is absorbed with base gossip and character assassination. We also see it uh, uh, in our public interactions, in the way that we interact in the public square. If you think about the fact that protests now are met with counter protests, lawsuits are met with counter suits, um, rage is met with even more and more righteous rage. We even see it in the personal level. You can see this most clearly, I think, with the use of social media. One of the main driving forces that keeps companies like Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram keeps them in business. One of the main motivating factors behind social media is our need to have our opinions confirmed by people who are just like us. And the other reason that we enjoy using social media is, it's, uh, is because we enjoy to getting on and cutting down people and shaming people who are not like us. It's so easy to sit behind a keyboard or behind a computer screen and say things about other people without any thought for how it might affect a real, live person. And this, uh, this disorder that is raging in our society is not harmless either. It ultimately leads to a devaluing of human life. People hide behind their ideology and their social tribe And they feel totally justified to lash out and do violence to people who are not like them. So when Jack Phillips refused to bake a cake for a gay couple, not only did the state of Colorado try to shut him down, but he received death threats for standing for his personal convictions. But even good conservative Christian people can be tempted by this culture of rage too. As when abortion clinics and doctors receive bomb threats or even are murdered for their practices. When we look at our society, our temptation might be to opine like uh, Miss Noonan did for a better day, a day when people were pure and loving and decent. And while it's true that these issues have certainly gotten worse in our day, the truth is social media and the 24-hour news cycle have only brought to the fore a characteristic of the human heart that has always been there. The Bible says that humans, by our very nature, seek out this disorder. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Since the very start of Genesis, as we've walked through the book of Genesis, we've seen a pattern that has developed. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God created an orderly world out of nothing. I want you to notice the order that God brings into being. He speaks and things come to order. Think about the fact that he declares day and night, earth and water, different kinds of animals, and he even declares order in the man and woman relationship. Not only that, but he speaks each time he creates something and he declares what is right and what is wrong when he looks at his creation and he says that it is good. But from the very first mention of Satan's temptation in chapter 3, we see a war that rages against God's orderly creation. Satan distorts the natural order of things by possessing a serpent. He distorts the order of the family by approaching Eve, not Adam. He distorts the order of God's law by questioning what God really said. And he ultimately, ultimately he distorts the order of God's authority by suggesting that Adam and Eve can ob- obtain wisdom Apart from God. This disorder of God's. uh, This distortion of God's order. Brought about violence to the world. God in order to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Does violence to an animal. Makes a sacrifice. So that man and woman are covered. And their shame is hidden. We've seen the disorder and the violence of sin spiral further and further out of control with each chapter that we've gone through. In chapter 4, we see Cain who assumes that he can offer a guiltless offering and then he becomes jealous of his faithful brother Abel and does violence to Abel by killing him. And then in chapters four and five, we saw that Cain's seed continues to bring about this disorder. And most clearly, we see that in the story of Lamech, who uh, distorted God's order for the family by marrying two women and also distorted God's promise of protection by doing violence to a young man and then bragging about it. And so now we come to chapter six. And we find the ultimate distortion of God's order that precipitates the judgment of God on all of humanity. And we find in chapter 6 verse 1 that at some point after the fall, we don't know when because the author doesn't tell us when this is, but at some point after the fall when men and women began to procreate and began to spread across the land is what Moses says there, uh, there's a group of beings named the sons of God who the Bible says notice the daughters of men and it says it took they took of them any that they chose. Now outside of Genesis chapter 6, this group called the sons of God is never mentioned again in the book of Genesis. In fact, the only other place where this term sons of God shows up in the way that it shows up here is is in the book of Job. And it shows up three different times in the book of Job. And the idea in the book of Job is this group of divine beings who go before the throne of God. If you remember the story of God, it starts all the way, uh, uh, the story of Job, Uh, it starts right away in Job chapter 1 where it says that God called the sons of God to meet with him. And Satan was there and he asked, have you considered my servant? Job. If you remember that story, you remember that that scene from the story. So these sons of God are demons. They are fallen angels. We know from various places in the Bible, like Daniel chapter eight and Revelation chapter twelve, that Satan is not the only fallen angel that it says in those two places that I just mentioned that when Satan fell, he brought a third of the angels with him, that there was a great rebellion in the heavenly places as a result of, of Satan's fall. And so these fallen angels roamed the earth like Satan, with Satan. And like Satan, they set out to deceive man. And so now they look upon the daughters of men And they take them to be their wives. And the Bible says here that they have children after them. Now the ancient Canaanite cultures that surrounded uh, Israel. They believed in these uh, fallen angels as well. But they didn't believe that they were bad. In fact, they called them God. And they looked upon them as the source of wisdom. And the source of new technology for their societies. They admired these fallen angels and even the, the uh, uh, offspring of these fallen angels as sons of God and as those who were good to humanity. But just like Satan, these fallen angels distort, distort everything about God's order. They distort the line between angel and human in what they do. They distort the family relationship, and they distort God's wisdom. The result of this distortion of God's order leads to a humanity that is wicked, corrupt, and violent. Notice uh, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. It says that God passes judgment on humanity by declaring it to be wicked. And notice how far this wickedness goes. He says that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. Now understand brothers and sisters that wickedness of the wickedness of the human heart is not just an issue of behavior or environment. It is not that if we just get the right family situation, if we just get the right societal situation, if we just get the right media situation, if we just get the right government situation, then evil will be vanquished and all will be right in the world. No, people will still have a wicked heart at the end of the day. Because, as God says, that the heart is wicked And only thinks of evil continually. It is something that goes all the way to the core of who we are. So God also says in verse 11 that mankind was corrupt and that violence filled the earth. The result of the corrupting influence of sin was ultimately a devaluing of human life. And as a result of this terminal wickedness and corruption, God declares judgment. Starting in verse 3, but then also in verse 7. He declares judgment in two ways. He declares judgment personally with every individual human being. And he declares judgment universally over all of creation. So first... He promises in verse three that his spirit will not strive with man forever. Now, remember two things about the garden scene. If you remember back to Genesis chapter one and chapter two and then chapter three. First, remember when God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. Did he just say, all right, go and be a human? No, he did something extra. Says that he knelt down. And he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. We find throughout Scripture that God's Spirit animates life. All life is animated by the Spirit of God. This is why, from a Christian perspective, it is a nonsensical question to ask what life would be like without God. You know, in our day, we think of God as kind of this this optional idea that if you believe in God, that's great. It's good for you therapeutically. It's good for you to to have something to believe in in life. But he's not really necessary. You don't really have to have him. But according to Scripture, you would not live if it weren't for the will of God. It is crazy talk to ask what life would be like without God because there would be no life without God. We do not sustain our own lives. If you are breathing today, right now, if you take a breath today, in this next second, it is because with every breath you take, God is actively choosing to animate your life. The fact that you are breathing is evidence of the presence of God in this world, and in your life. Your breath is a direct and active result of God's breath. And what God says here is, I choose to take away my breath in men after 120 years. And the second thing about that is remember that the curse of eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil was that Adam and Eve would die As God says, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But did Adam and Eve die on the day that they ate of the fruit? No. God postponed his penalty for their sin against him. Not just that, but every descendant after Adam, God postponed their descendant. The reason that the numbers are so big, if you read uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, if you read how these people lived 962 years or 365 years and on and on. These numbers are huge in how long people lived. And what the idea that Moses is trying to get across to you is that God was good to these people, that they were sinners. That they murdered each other. That they rebelled against God. But yet God is good to them. And he waits on them. He is patient and long-suffering with them. God postpones his judgment for sin. But now God says he looks at the corruption of man. And he declares that he will remove his spirit from them. He will no longer give man long life. But instead, he will limit their lives to 120 years. And then we also see that God's judgment is universal as he decides to wipe out all of humanity with a flood. But now in all of this judgment, you might begin to lose hope for humanity. You might think, well, there's no way that we can escape the wickedness of our hearts. There's no way that we can escape the corruption of our nature. But even in that despair, Moses gives us at the end of this passage in verse eight, just an inkling of hope. The very, very small ray of hope. If you look at verse eight, he says, but Noah found favor. In the eyes of the Lord. (laughs) Oh, for all of the heaviness of the next few chapters, for all of the weightiness of the corruption of man and the judgment of God. We're going to go through all of that over the next few times that we meet as we go through that. Hold on to this. God finds favor. He finds favor with someone. Now, yes, it's just one man and his family, but he finds favor. Now, the question might be, well, how does God find favor? And our first reaction might be to say, well, God finds favor with the righteous. He finds favor with that righteous crusader who works against the tide of the world to bring order and life out of a world that is disordered and chaotic and violent. And that wouldn't be a bad guess. But the truth is, we already have that story. The nation of Israel was commanded by God to do those very things. In fact, they were given over, over 600 laws and were commanded to follow them in the most stringent of ways. And yet, we know what turned out. We know how that story ends. In spite of the abiding presence of God with the people of Israel... In spite of having his law, in spite of having his prophets and in having his kings, the people still distorted the order of God and did violence to the images of God in their fellow men. They broke every last one of his laws. They worshipped other gods. They followed after lunatics. They sacrificed their own children and they killed the prophets of God. But then in the midst of this disordered and chaotic and violent world, a promised son is born. John says in John 1, 8 and 9 that this son came to his own people and even his own people did not know him. He came to a people who were ruled by the Roman Empire and they were fractured into four violently disordered political movements. Even with his birth, the world reacted violently against him. King Herod sent soldiers to kill every newborn son in Bethlehem in order to prevent him from coming of age. When he did come of age, these four political parties sought to kill him at every turn. And yet, when he preached, a new order came to be. People who were violently oppressed by demons were suddenly restored to sanity. Diseased, ravaged men and women were given back their health. Tax collectors and zealots, two different groups that were violently opposed to one another, sat around the same table and fellowshiped with him. He took the law of God, which those political parties had misused and abused for their own ends. And he explained what it really meant at the heart of it. He turned the world order on its head by saying things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And saying things like love your enemy and do good to the one who despises you. And even when the world would do its worst violence to him. He would offer back no argument. When his disciples would do violence in his name, he would say, Those who live by the sword would die by the sword. And even as violent humanity ravaged his body on the cruel cross of Calvary, he would cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yet, in his death and his resurrection, He did what we could not do. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the true son of God. He did not come to God. He did not look at God's corrupted creation and lust after it like the fallen angels of Genesis chapter six. Rather, he looked at our corruption with compassion and with an unconditional love. He bore with us in our corruption, even identifying with us by taking on flesh. He bore our wrath against his righteousness and he absorbed the wrath of man and the wrath of God in one loving and gracious act. Therefore, Jesus, in his death and His resurrection restores order and life to us. In Genesis chapter 6, God says, I will remove my spirit from man after 120 years, but after Jesus, God pours out His spirit limitlessly to us who trust in Him. Through Jesus Christ, we have full access to the Spirit of God because of what He has done. And Jesus will one day rule over a perfect creation that he has completely restored. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, all that this world has to offer apart from Jesus It is disorder, rage, chaos, and death. And judgment is coming. You know it's true. The world knows it's true. All you've got to do is look at what's popular on TV to see. We know judgment's coming. All of our narratives, all the stories we write are about impending doom and judgment coming on this world. We know it's there. And Jesus says that in the day that in the last days, it will be just like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking. They'll be given and, and taken in marriage just like the days of Noah. And then the end will come. The end is coming. Judgment is coming. So repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters. The way that we bring God's order in life to the world is through our witness in the world. God has given us His Spirit, and He has called us sons and daughters of God. So we bring order by being salt and light in the world. We bring order by doing the things that Jesus has commanded us to do, by loving the loveless, by caring for the fatherless and the widow. By doing good to our neighbor, as we do those things, we bring order in a disordered world. When you love your neighbor as Christ loved him, he sees a, a different world—a world that doesn't answer offense with offense, a world that doesn't rage because the world is raging at us, a world that a world that perseveres and loves and does good instead of responding with base gossip and character assassination and protest and rage. They see a different world, a world that Christ established through His death and His resurrection. And we bring life to the world by telling others of the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why when... The early Christians were faced with persecution when mobs of people showed up at their house to take them to be killed. Why they didn't defend themselves. Why they didn't answer violence with violence. It's because the word of their testimony had the power to defeat Satan's armies in a way that the world does not understand. So when we give this same testimony, we turn the world on its head. We defeat the powers and principalities that would do violence against the kingdom of God. And we bring a new order to this world that only Jesus' gospel can bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son who brings order and life to us, even in a world that is violently set against him. Lord, we thank you that it is by his blood and his resurrection that we have this new life, that it can only be found in him. Father, bless us as we go out that we might be vessels of that mercy, that we might be vessels of order and life in a world that is so turned upside down father bless us as we go bless us as we continue to worship may we respond as you have called us to in christ's name i pray amen